Welcome to Payne on Politics, a podcast where host Dr. Gregory Payne of Emerson College sits down with fellow experts to discuss the current state of politics, public opinion, and global affairs. In a world growing increasingly complex, communication and critical thinking is key. This only makes the Emerson motto, expression necessary to evolution, more true. Hello, I'm Gregory Payne, the Chair of Communication Studies at Emerson College, the first communication department and college in the United States. And part of Payne on Politics is connecting with people that have made a difference. And when I think about alums, in the past we've had uh, alums in politics, we're now involving entertainment. I've got Brian Weedling. I have to say, Brian, first of all, it's great to connect with you here in beautiful Santa Monica. Thank you for uh, coming and visiting me here at the office. I know you're in the midst of a brand new project, but I would like to give give those listeners who are tuning in today a little bit of a background. Brian was in my advocacy and argument class, and we were studying Kent State. A couple of people that we've talked to before, Susan Del Percio, now at MSNBC, uh, said that Kent State, her, her uh, course on that was one that get, provided her kind of a turning point of what she wanted to do, and says that's kind of the special secret sauce of Emerson. When we were talking about Kent State, you were not really buying that the story had been told yet, and, and you basically came to me and said, we need to interview a guardsman and I said they don't talk what did you what was your response after that well you had already opened up your sort of coffers of uh, rolodexes and FBI papers and so I realized that you had sort of everything there including the number of you know one of the guardsmen so I just called him I you know it was just I was I don't know 20 years old 19 years old and just seemed like, well, I'll just call him and see if he'll do an interview. And I think I was just naive enough and came off just innocent enough that he said, sure, I'll talk to this kid. I think what you did, what you epitomize is what I think many people always tell me, especially out here in the West Coast, and that is Emerson students don't see any barriers. Uh, many people tried to get Larry Schaefer to talk, and he refused. And when you said you were going to go down, I think on your own dime, you're you're no, taking no, your spring I, break. I, I believe I, I got one of the student uh, uh, groups on campus to to support to you? support it to give me a couple thousand dollars for the trip. Yes, and uh, it was just at the end of the year their budget. They had some leftover money, and and I believe it was either you or Pete Chavani that showed me that angle of that there's all these student groups that haven't spent their money. You should see if they want to spend their money on you. Well, listen, I think one thing I know both of us would say is many people out there listening uh, remember and, of course, love Pete Chimani, and he'll always be with us. And so I would say for Pete and all those people who were mentored by him, here's a good example. You know, Brian said, okay, let's try to utilize that money. You went down to Florida. Uh, and what was it that you were able to persuade this guardsman Schaefer who gave you lots of information? Uh, what did you basically say to him? I just told him that I wanted to hear his story. I think it was, I also came from it from the perspective um, that my dad was in the National Guard in May of 1970. My older brother was born two days before May 4th. And so my mom, when she told the story of Kent State, which was when the NBC movie of the week came out, which you were a part of. I think I was like eight or nine, and I said, oh, what's Kent State? And she gave me the very bland 1970s Ohio housewife version of what happened, which was there was a student protest on campus, and the guard turned around and basically accidentally shot 
four students and four, four students were killed. Didn't even talk about the other nine or, or anything like that at the time. Um, but it, it was just enough to intrigue me as a little kid to think, ah, I want to know more about that. And then, boom, here, here it is. I'm in your class and we're talking about it. And to me, it just seemed like, oh, immediately you were telling me things and sharing with me things that... You know, you just didn't learn in a movie of the week and, you know, certainly didn't come from how my parents described it to me. Well, you know, I, when I think of that film, it was a miracle that it was done. I think uh, Hamilton Cloud, Karen Danaher at NBC. Uh, when I think of that, I also realize we're trying to tell the story. We're trying to show that there was no reason the guard should have turned around and fired, which, of course, was what the president's commission uh, said. You went in and you listened to Schaefer's narrative, which was from the guardsman's perspective. If you were summing that up, what did Schaefer say, which I thought was a very, very honest conversation? Um, you know, the, the, the biggest thing that I remember from that was I asked him at the end, like, if you could go back 25 years and do anything differently, would you? And he said, you know, I'm trying to think of the exact words, but like after 25 years, when I look back and Monday morning, Monday morning quarterback myself, I wouldn't change anything I did that day. Right. I think the one thing you brought out, though, especially given communication, is that he did say Governor Rhodes' rhetoric, uh, basically saying that they were under martial law, gave them at least the idea, the perception that they could turn around and fire. Brian, one thing that I've always been impressed with, and uh, Janice, who, of course, was a good friend of yours and began the L.A. program out here in internships, you've constantly stayed with films like this, and you've got a new project that you're going to be launching in a couple of weeks. Could you tell us a little bit about this? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, it's funny. I, I did kind of move away from the politics of storytelling, but I think that um, I gravitated towards things that had an underdog or somebody whose voice wasn't getting to be told or their story wasn't getting to be told. So, you know, I've sort of gravitated. I mean, I did a film about the captain of the U.S. soccer team. I did a film about people that have a fear of public speaking, trying to compete to be the world champion. Um, and I, I recently produced a film uh, a year or so ago about a girl who was born to parents that both have mental disabilities. And she was going through her senior year of high school and deciding whether she was going to stay home and care for her parents or go away to a four-year school. And also, she was navigating the whole getting into college process pretty much on her own. Right. Um, so... That one, that film kind of uh, sparked something in me, um, which was really owning my own identity, which is, you know, that I've been, since you've known me, I've been living with physical disabilities. Um, I was in a car accident when I was 17. I lost my left leg below the knee and had damage to my right arm, which has been permanent. And I spent a lot of time in my career trying to hide those disabilities so that I could get work, so that people wouldn't think less of me when I was trying to compete for jobs. And I finally realized when I was making Wildflower that my identity really is wrapped in what I've been dealing with, which is my life experience with you know physical disabilities. And so because of that, it sort of broadened the the place of where I wanted to be taking my messages and what stories I wanted to tell. And so just before the pandemic, I was introduced to a theater company here in Los Angeles uh, called Theater by the Blind. It's the only all-blind theater company in America. And when I was introduced to them, they were um, just asked to take on a project called The Braille Legacy, which is a musical. 
um, and it's the story of Louis Braille. And it's the first time that this theater's done a musical, and it's the first time that um, they have someone capturing their process um, really from start to finish. And when we started, the idea was that we started in like February of 2020. They were going to launch this in June of 2020, and you know, five, six months of shooting. And, you know, then we go into an edit room and then COVID hit. And I spent the first two months saying, oh, this is just going to be a little blip in this whole story. And here we are two weeks away from opening night. COVID is still breathing down our back. The director of the musical just tested positive yesterday, had to do the rehearsal via a Zoom so he could give notes to the cast. They've got like five more rehearsals before Hell Week, which is basically dress rehearsals all week long. And uh, I'm hoping we're going to get to opening night and uh, crossing my fingers that uh, it feels like a NASCAR race where there's a crash in front of you and you're just driving through the smoke and you hope you don't hit anything before you come out the other side. And I'm keeping the fingers crossed that we get there and get through to the other side because at this point, we've we've now shot 105 days on this. Um, you know, Because of COVID, we were able to spend a lot of time with each character and really suss out who has the most amazing stories, what's going to really end up on the uh, uh, in the film and what's going to be on the cutting room floor. That amount of time has also given us the ability to really get intimately involved with these characters and build a trust that I don't think I've been able to build on any other film. And I've felt like on other films, I did build a fairly strong trust with people. This one's just at another level because, I mean, we've been with them for two and a half years and taking this roller coaster ride with them and just hoping it's uh, it's almost over here and we get a standing O on, uh, on opening night. Well, I'm, I'm hoping very much to be able to see that because this, again, is another example of how you take life's struggles, the challenges, and you turn them into something understandable and empathic to an audience. I uh, would like to share one thing. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Shepard and myself, Spencer, and others were in Chicago for a polling convention because, of course, Spencer is such a great pollster. And my cousin, who's a pollster, Bryce Summary, uh, was, was there, and we had just seen him, and he was walking on Michigan Avenue with his uh, wife and noticed a car speeding toward him on the sidewalk, pushed her out of the way and ended up losing both legs. And so my question to you as someone, a star athlete, someone, as you know, uh, better than any, have faced these incredible challenges. And one thing I would say, I've always been so impressed because you've never for a moment let any of that keep you from doing it. What would be your message to Bryce as he said the other day, well, the one thing my kids are so young, they look at me as going to be the robo dad. What would you say to Bryce as well as others who face these type of challenges? Well, I mean, that's hearing that just sort of brings me back and gives me pause to my 17 year old self and what I would have said to myself back then. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a process, um, you know, especially if it comes from a trauma, um, that you're going to physically improve and get better and get your prosthetics and start walking and get that part of your life together. But then there's going to be this whole other part that may take years for you to even pretend to address. Um, for me, it was like 15 years before I realized that I was suffering from PTSD and needed to do something about it and sort of went after that part of my journey in the same way that I did the physical part to get back onto the soccer field. Um, but it was very, it was, you know, a different process, but still with that sort of same determination. Um, you know, I would say uh, you, you don't give up. Days are going to be hard. And 
that's part of life now. Um, you, you may not have realized it before, but you know you probably have a a well of determination that you never thought you were going to have to dig into, but you have it, and you'll see it. And when you do, it'll it'll start to make you realize that this is going to be okay. Well, Bryce, I know you're going to be listening out there, and Brian is someone that I would love for the two of you to chat. Uh, Brian, we thank you for meeting with us, but as we close, when you think of Emerson College, it's kind of a special college. As I said, First Communication College, you and I have remained very, very close. You've been close with my entire family. What is it about Emerson that you think distinguishes it? You have so many of your colleagues out here on the West Side that are doing well in terms of entertainment and communication. Well, you know, the fact that you and I, 30 years later, are still in communication is part of what is makes Emerson so special. I mean, it's people like you and Pete Chivani, um that took an interest in kids and took an interest in them long after they were in your classroom and wanted them to succeed and did everything to help them do that. Um, not every school does that. Most, most people take a class, they never hear or see that professor ever again. And, you know, I know you've done that for me, but I know you've done it for hundreds of other kids over all these years. So um, I, I really think it, it starts with a faculty that really gives a shit. And you guys cared about where we were going and what our dreams were and sort of tried to lift them up and tell us that they were possible. Um, and then I think, you know, the student body at Emerson is, is unique and highly motivated. And, you know, it's a school full of dreamers. And when you're a school full of dreamers, you, uh, you end up uh, having a lot of people who try to support you and try to, try to lift you into a place where dreams come true. And when Pete and I first talked about me coming there, he said, Emerson is a place where we make dreams happen. Well, you have, you have been someone who I think has inspired people. You've had many interns, not only from Emerson, from Blancarna, from Janice's uh, internship program. I would like to say that you epitomize my view of politics, and that is life is politics. And through your stories, I think you make the world a more gentle and especially more knowledgeable place. So, Brian Wheedling, thank you, and I can't wait to be there opening night. I really hope to see you there, and thank you uh, to get the surprise of you coming out like this. Is uh, you, you couldn't have come at a better time for me. It's really great to see you. Well, all your friends at Emerson send you the very best, and we look forward to seeing you in L.A. as well as Boston. Take care, Brian. All my love to them. Will do. Bye-bye.